This is Fireside Block, a cozy reading podcast. If you like what you hear and you want to hear more, consider donating on Patreon. Link is in the description. Thanks. Today's episode covers chapters 25 through 27 of book three of Middlemarch by George Eliot. If this is your first episode with me, I would recommend going back and starting over just so you're not lost. Without further ado, Fred Vincy wanted to arrive at Stone Court when Mary could not expect him, and when his uncle was not downstairs. In this case, she might be sitting alone in the wainscoted parlor. He left his horse in the yard to avoid making a noise on the gravel in front, and entered the parlor without other notice than the noise of the door handle. Mary was in her usual corner, laughing over Mrs. Piazzi's recollections of Johnson, and looked up at the fun still in her face. It gradually faded as she saw Fred approach her without speaking and stand before her with his elbow on the mantelpiece, looking ill. She too was silent, only raising her eyes to him inquiringly. Mary, he began, I am a good-for-nothing blackguard. I should think one of those epithets would do at a time, said Mary, trying to smile but feeling alarmed. I know you will never think well of me any more. You will think me a liar. You will think me dishonest. You will think I didn't care for you or your father and mother. You always do make the worst of me, I know. I cannot deny that I shall think all that of you, Fred, if you give me good reasons. But please, to tell me at once what you've done. I would rather know the painful truth than imagine it. I owed money. hundred and sixty pounds. I asked your father to put his name to a bill. I thought it would not signify to him. I made sure of paying the money myself, and I have tried as hard as I could. And now... I've been so unlucky. A horse has turned out badly. I can only pay fifty pounds, and I can't ask my father for the money. He would not give me a farthing, and my uncle gave me a hundred a little while ago. So what can I do? And now your father has no ready money to spare, and your mother will have to pay away her ninety-two pounds that she saved, and she says your savings must go too. You see what a... Oh, poor mother, poor father, said Mary, her eyes filling with tears and a little sob rising, which she tried to repress. She looked straight before her and took no notice of Fred, all the consequences at home being present to her. He too remained silent for some moments, feeling more miserable than ever. I wouldn't have hurt you for the world, Mary, he said at last. You can never forgive me. What does it matter whether I forgive you? said Mary, passionately. Would that make it any better for my mother to lose the money she's been earning by lessons for four years that she might send Alfred to Mr. Hammer's? Should you think all that pleasant enough if I forgave you? Say what you like, Mary. I deserve it all. I don't want to say anything, said Mary, more quietly, and my anger is of no use. She dried her eyes, threw aside her book, and fetched her sewing. Fred followed her with his eyes, hoping that they would meet hers, and in that way find access for his imploring penitence. But no, Mary could easily avoid looking upward. I do care about your mother's money going, he said, when she was seated again and sewing quickly. I wanted to ask you, Mary, don't you think that Mr. Featherstone, if you were to tell him, tell him, I mean, about apprenticing Alfred, would advance the money? My family is not fond of begging, Fred. We would rather work for our money. Besides, you say that Mr. Featherstone has lately given you a hundred pounds. He rarely makes presents. He has never made presents to us. I am sure my father will not ask him for anything, and even if I chose to beg of him, it would be of no use. I am so miserable, Mary. If you knew how miserable I am, you would be sorry for me. There are other things to be more sorry for than that. 
but selfish people always think their own discomfort of more importance than anything else in the world. I see enough of that every day. It is hardly fair to call me selfish. If you knew what things other young men do, you would think me a good way off the worst. I know that people who spend a great deal of money on themselves without knowing how they shall pay must be selfish. They're always thinking of what they can get for themselves and not of what other people may lose. Any man may be unfortunate, Mary, and find himself unable to pay when he meant it. There's not a better man in the world than your father, and yet he got into trouble. How dare you make any comparison between my father and you, Fred? said Mary in a deep tone of indignation. He never got into trouble by thinking of his own idle pleasures, but because he was always thinking of the work he was doing for other people. And he has fared hard and worked hard to make good everybody's loss. And you think that I shall never try to make good anything, Mary. It is not generous to believe the worst of a man. When you've got any power over him, I think you might try and use it to make him better. But that is what you never do. However, I'm going, Fred ended languidly. I shall never speak to you about anything again. I'm very sorry for all the trouble I've caused. That's all. Mary had dropped her work out of her hand and looked up. There is often something maternal, even in a girlish love, and Mary's hard experience had wrought her nature to an impressibility very different from that hard, slight thing which we call girlishness. At Fred's last words, she felt an instantaneous pang, something like what a mother feels at the imagined sobs or cries of her naughty, truant child, which may lose itself and get harm. And when, looking up, her eyes met his dull, despairing glance, her pity for him surmounted her anger and all her other anxieties. Oh, Fred, how ill you look. Sit down a moment. Don't go yet. Let me tell Uncle that you are here. He's been wondering that he has not seen you for a whole week. Mary spoke hurriedly, saying the words that came first without knowing very well what they were, but saying them in a half-soothing, half-beseeching tone, and rising as if to go away to Mr. Featherstone. Of course, Fred felt as if the clouds had parted and a gleam had come. He moved and stood in her way. Say one word, Mary, and I will do anything. Say you will not think the worst of me, will not give me up altogether. As if it were any pleasure to me to think ill of you, said Mary, in a mournful tone. As if it were not very painful to me to see you an idle, frivolous creature. How can you bear to be so contemptible when others are working and striving, and there are so many things to be done? How can you bear to be fit for nothing in the world that is useful? And that's so much good in your disposition, Fred. You might be worth a great deal. I will try to be anything you like, Mary, if you will say that you love me. I should be ashamed to say that I loved a man who must always be hanging on others and reckoning on what they would do for him. What will you be when you're forty? Like Mr. Bowyer, I suppose. Just as idle, living in Mrs. Beck's front parlor, fat and shabby, hoping somebody will invite you to dinner, spending your morning and learning a comic song. Huh, no, learning a tune on the flute. Mary's lips had begun to curl with a smile, as soon as she had asked that question about Fred's future, young souls are mobile, and before she ended, her face had its full illumination of fun. To him, it was like the cessation of an ache that Mary could laugh at him. With a passive sort of smile, he tried to reach her hand, but she slipped quickly away towards the door and said, I shall tell Uncle, you must see him for a moment or two. Fred secretly felt that his future was guaranteed against the fulfillment of Mary's sarcastic prophecies, apart from that anything which he was ready to do if she would define it. He never dared in Mary's presence to approach the subject of his expectations for Mr. Featherstone, and she always ignored them, as if everything depended on himself. But if ever he actually came into the property, she must recognize the change in his position. All this passed through his mind somewhat languidly, before he went up to see his uncle. 
He stayed but a little while, excusing himself on the ground that he had a cold, and Mary did not reappear before he left the house. But as he rode home, he began to be more conscious of being ill than of being melancholy. When Caleb Garth arrived at Stone Court soon after dusk, Mary was not surprised, although he seldom had leisure for paying her a visit and was not at all fond of having to talk with Mr. Featherstone. The old man, on the other hand, felt himself ill at ease with the brother-at-law whom he could not annoy, who did not mind about being considered poor, had nothing to ask of him, and understood all kinds of farming and mining business better than he did. But Mary had felt sure that her parents would want to see her, and if her father had not come, she would have obtained leave to go home for an hour or two the next day. After discussing prices during tea with Mr. Featherstone, Caleb rose to bid him goodbye and said, I want to speak with you, Mary. She took a candle into another large parlor where there was no fire, and setting down the feeble light on the dark mahogany table, turned round to her father, and putting her arms round his neck, kissed him with childish kisses which he delighted in, the expression of his large brows softening as the expression of a great beautiful dog softens when it is caressed. Mary was his favorite child, and whatever Susan might say, and right as she was on all other subjects, Caleb thought it natural that Fred or anyone else should think Mary more lovable than other girls. I've got something to tell you, my dear, said Caleb in his hesitating way. No very good news, but then it might be worse. About money, father? I think I know what it is. I? How can that be? You see, I've been a bit of a fool again and put my name to a bill, and now it comes to paying and your mother's got to part with her savings. That's the worst of it. And even they won't quite make things even. We wanted a hundred and ten pounds. Your mother has ninety-two, and I have none to spare in the bank. And she thinks that you have some savings. Oh, yes, I have more than four and twenty pounds. I thought you would come, father. So I put it in my bag. See? Beautiful white notes and gold. Mary took out the folded money from her reticule and put it into her father's hand. Well, but how? We only want eighteen. Here, put the rest back, child. But how did you know about it? said Caleb, who, in his unconquerable indifference to money, was beginning to be chiefly concerned about the relation the affair might have to Mary's affections. Fred told me this morning. Ah, did he come on purpose? Yes, I think so. He was a good deal distressed. I'm afraid Fred is not to be trusted, Mary, said the father, with hesitating tenderness. He means better than he acts, perhaps, but I should think it a pity for anybody's happiness to be wrapped up in him, and so would your mother. And so should I, father, said Mary, not looking up, but putting the back of her father's hand against her cheek. I don't want to pry, my dear, but I was afraid there might be something between you and Fred, and I wanted to caution you. You see, Mary, here Caleb's voice became more tender. He'd been pushing his hat about on the table and looking at it, but finally he turned his eyes on his daughter. A woman, let her be as good as she may, has got to put up with the life her husband makes for her. Your mother has had to put up with a good deal because of me. Mary turned the back of her father's hand to her lips and smiled at him. Well, well, nobody's perfect, but... Here Mr. Garth shook his head to help out the inadequacy of words. What I'm thinking of is what it must be for a wife when she's never sure of her husband, when he hasn't got a principle in him to make him more afraid of doing the wrong thing by others than of getting his own toes pinched. That's the long and short of it, Mary. Young folks may get fond of each other before they know what life is, and they may think it all holiday if they can only get together. But it soon turns into working day, my dear. However, you have more sense than most, and you haven't been kept in cotton wool. 
There may be no occasion for me to say this, but a father trembles for his daughter. You were all by yourself here. Don't fear for me, father, said Mary, gravely meeting her father's eyes. Fred has always been very good to me. He is kind-hearted and affectionate, and not false, I think, with all his self-indulgence. But I will never engage myself to one who has no manly independence and who goes on loitering away his time on the chance that others will provide for him. You and my mother have taught me too much pride for that. That's right, that's right. Then I'm easy, said Mr. Garth, taking up his hat. But it's hard to run away with your earnings, eh, child? Father, said Mary in her deepest tone of remonstrance, take pockets full of love besides to them all at home. It was her last word before he closed the outer door on himself. Suppose your father wanted your earnings, said old Mr. Featherstone, with his usual power of unpleasant surmise when Mary returned to him. He makes but a tight fit, I reckon. You're of age now. You ought to be saving for yourself. I consider my father and mother the best part of myself, sir, said Mary coldly. Mr. Featherstone grunted. He could not deny that an ordinary sort of girl like her might be expected to be useful. So he thought of another rejoinder, disagreeable enough to be always apropos. If Fred Vincy comes tomorrow. Now, don't you keep him chattering. Let Chapter him 26 come up to me. But Fred did not go to Stone Court the next day, for reasons that were quite peremptory. From those visits to unsanitary Hounsley streets in search of diamond, he had brought back not only a bad bargain in horse flesh, but the further misfortune of some ailment which for a day or two had deemed mere depression and headache, but which got so much worse when he returned from his visit to Stone Court that, going into the dining room, he threw himself on the sofa, and in answer to his mother's anxious question said, I feel very ill. I think you must send for Wrench. Wrench came, but did not apprehend anything serious, spoke of a slight derangement, and did not speak of coming again on the morrow. He had a due value for the Vincy's house, but the wariest men are apt to be dulled by routine, and on worried mornings will sometimes go through their business with the zest of the daily bell-ringer. Mr. Wrench was a small, neat, bilious man, with a well-dressed wig. He had a laborious practice, an erasable temper, a lymphatic wife and seven children, and he was already rather late before setting out on a four-miles drive to meet Dr. Minchin on the other side of Tipton, the decease of Hicks, a rural practitioner, having increased Middlemarch practice in that direction. Great statesman heir, and why not small medical men? Mr. Wrench did not neglect sending the usual white parcels, which this time had black and drastic contents. Their effect was not alleviating to poor Fred, who, however, unwilling as he said to believe that he was in for an illness, rose at his usual easy hour the next morning and went downstairs meaning to breakfast, but succeeded in nothing but in sitting and shivering by the fire. Mr. Wrench was again sent for, but was gone on his rounds, and Mrs. Vincy, seeing her darling's changed looks and general misery, began to cry and said she would send for Dr. Sprague. Oh, nonsense, mother, it's nothing, said Fred, putting out his hot, dry hand to her. I shall soon be all right. I must have taken cold in that nasty, damp ride. Mama, said Rosamond, who was seated near the window. The dining room windows looked on that highly respectable street called Lowick Gate. There's Mr. Lydgate, stopping to speak to someone. If I were you, I would call him in. He has cured Ellen Bulstrode. They say he cures everyone. Mrs. Vincy sprang to the window and opened it in an instant, thinking only of Fred and not of medical etiquette. Lydgate was only two yards off on the other side of some iron palisading, and turned round at the sudden sound of the sash before she called to him. In two minutes he was in the room, and Rosamond went out, 
after waiting just long enough to show a pretty anxiety conflicting with her sense of what was becoming. Lydgate had to hear a narrative in which Mrs. Vincy's mind insisted with remarkable instinct on every point of minor importance, especially on what Mr. Wrench had said, and had not said about coming again. That there might be an awkward affair with Wrench, Lydgate saw at once, but the case was serious enough to make him dismiss that consideration. He was convinced that Fred was in the pink-skinned stage of typhoid fever, and that he had taken just the wrong medicines. He must go to bed immediately, must have a regular nurse, and various appliances and precautions must be used, about which Lydgate was particular. Poor Mrs. Vincy's terror at these indications of danger found vent in such words as came most easily. She thought it very ill usage on the part of Mr. Wrench, who had attended their house so many years in preference to Mr. Peacock, though Mr. Peacock was equally a friend. Why Mr. Wrench should neglect her children more than others, she could not for the life of her understand. He had not neglected Mrs. Larcher's when they had the measles, nor indeed would Mrs. Vincy have wished that he should, and if anything should happen— here poor Mrs. Vincy's spirit quite broke down, and her Niobe throat and good-humoured face were sadly convulsed. This was in the hall out of Fred's hearing, but Rosamond had opened the drawing-room door, and now came forward anxiously. Lydgate apologised for Mr. Wrench, said that the symptoms yesterday might have been disguising, and that this form of fever was very equivocal in its beginnings. He would go immediately to the druggists and have a prescription made up in order to lose no time, but he would write to Mr. Wrench and tell him what had been done. But you must come again. You must go on attending Fred. If I can't have my boy left to anybody who may come or not. I can't have my boy left to anybody who may come or not. I bear nobody ill will, thank God, and Mr. Wrench saved me in the pleurisy, but he'd better have let me die if... if... I will meet Mr. Wrench here, then, shall I? said Lydgate, really believing that Wrench was not well prepared to deal wisely with the case of this kind. Pray make that arrangement, Mr. Lydgate, said Rosamond, coming to her mother's aid and supporting her arm to lead her away. When Mr. Vincy came home, he was very angry with Wrench and did not care if he never came into his house again. Lydgate should go on now, whether Wrench liked it or not. It was no joke to have fever in the house. Everybody must be sent to now not to come to dinner on Thursday, and Pritchard needn't get up any wine. Brandy was the best thing against infection. I shall drink brandy, added Mr. Vincent emphatically, as much as to say this was not an occasion for firing with blank cartridges. He's an uncommonly unfortunate lad, is Fred. He'd need have some luck by and by to make up for all this, else I don't know who'd have an eldest son. Don't say so, Vincy, said the mother with a quivering lip, if you don't want him to be taken from me. It will worry you to death, Lucy, that I can see, said Mr. Vincy more mildly. However, Wrench shall know what I think of the matter. What Mr. Vincy thought confusedly was that the fever might somehow have been hindered if Wrench had shown the proper solicitude about his, the mayor's, family. I'm the last man to give in to the cry about new doctors, or new parsons either whether they're Bulstrode's men or not, but Wrench shall know what I think, take it as he will. Wrench did not take it at all well. Lydgate was as polite as he could be in his offhand way, but politeness in a man who has placed you at a disadvantage is only an additional exasperation, especially if he happens to have been an object of dislike beforehand. Country practitioners used to be an irritable species, susceptible on the point of honor, and Mr. Wrench was one of the most irritable among them. He did not refuse to meet Lydgate in the evening, but his temper was somewhat tried on the occasion. He had to hear Mrs. Vincy say, Oh, Mr. Wrench, what have I ever done that you should use me so? To go away and never to come again, and my boy might have been stretched a corpse. Mr. Vincy, who had been keeping up a sharp fire on the enemy infection, and was a good deal heated in consequence, started up when he heard Wrench come in, and went into the hall to let him know what he thought. I'll tell you what, Wrench, this is beyond a joke, said the mayor. 
who of late had had to rebuke offenders with an official air, now broadened himself by putting his thumbs in his armholes, to let fever get unawares into a house like this. There are some things that ought to be actionable and are not so, that's my opinion. But irrational reproaches were easier to bear than the sense of being instructed, or rather the sense that a younger man like Lydgate inwardly considered him in need of instruction. For, in point of fact, Mr. Wrench afterwards said, Lydgate paraded flighty, foreign notions which would not wear. He swallowed his ire for the moment, but he afterwards wrote to decline further attendance in the case. The house might be a good one, but Mr. Wrench was not going to truckle to anybody on a professional matter. He reflected with much probability on his side that Lydgate would by and by be caught tripping too, and that his ungentlemanly attempts to discredit the sale of drugs by his professional brethren would by and by recoil on himself. He threw out biting remarks on Lydgate's tricks, worthy only of a quack, to get himself a factitious reputation with credulous people. That cant about cures was never got up by sound practitioners. This was a point in which Lydgate smarted as much as Wrench could desire. To be puffed by ignorance was not only humiliating, but perilous, not more enviable than the reputation of the weather prophet. He was impatient of the foolish expectations amidst which all work must be carried on and likely enough to damage himself as much as Mr. Wrench could wish, by an unprofessional openness. However, Lydgate was installed as medical attendant on the Vinces, and the event was the subject of general conversation in Middlemarch. Some said that the Vinces had behaved scandalously, that Mr. Vincey had threatened Wrench, and that Mrs. Vincey had accused him of poisoning her son. Others were of opinion that Mr. Lydgate's passing by was providential, that he was wonderfully clever in fevers, and that Bulstrode was in the right to bring him forward. Many people believe that Lydgate's coming to the town at all was really due to Bulstrode, and Mrs. Taft, who was always counting stitches and gathered her information in misleading fragments caught between the rows of her knitting, had got it into her head that Lydgate was a natural son of Bulstrode's, a fact which seemed to justify her suspicions of evangelical laymen. She one day communicated this piece of knowledge to Mrs. Fairbrother, who did not fail to tell her son of it, observing, I should not be surprised at anything in Bulstrode, but I should be sorry to think it of Mr. Lydgate. Why, mother, said Mr. Fairbrother after an explosive laugh, you know very well that Lydgate is of a good family in the North. He had never heard of Bulstrode before he came here. That is satisfactory so far as Mr. Lydgate is concerned, Camden, said the old lady, with an air of precision. But as to Bulstrode, the report may be true Chapter of some other Chapter 27 An eminent philosopher among my friends, who can dignify even your ugly furniture by lifting it into the serene light of science, has shown me this pregnant little fact. Your pier glass or extensive surface of polished steel made to be rubbed by a housemaid will be minutely and multitudinously scratched in all directions, but place now against it a lighted candle as a center of illumination, and lo, the scratches will seem to arrange themselves in a fine series of concentric circles round that little sun. It is demonstrable that the scratches are going everywhere impartially, and it is only your candle which produces the flattering illusion of a concentric arrangement, its light falling with an exclusive optical selection. These things are a parable. The scratches are events, and the candle is the egoism of any person now absent. Of Miss Vitsey, for example. Rosamond had a providence of her own who had kindly made her more charming than other girls, and who seemed to have arranged Fred's illness and Mr. Wrench's mistake in order to bring her and Lydgate within effective proximity. It would have been to contravene these arrangements if Rosamond had consented to go away to Stone Court or elsewhere, as her parents wished her to do, especially since Mr. Lydgate thought the precaution needless. Therefore, while Miss Morgan and the children were sent away to a farmhouse the morning after Fred's illness had declared itself, Rosamond refused to leave Papa and Mama.
poor mamma indeed was an object to touch any creature born of woman, and Mr. Vincey, who doted on his wife, was more alarmed on her account than on Fred's. But for his insistence, she would have taken no rest. Her brightness was all bedimmed, unconscious of her costume, which had always been so fresh and gay. She was like a sick bird with languid eye and plumage ruffled. Her senses dulled to the sights and sounds that used most to interest her. Fred's delirium, in which he seemed to be wandering out of her reach, tore her heart. After her first outburst against Mr. Wrench, she went about very quietly. Her one low cry was to Lydgate. She would follow him out of the room and put her hand on his arm, moaning out, Save my boy! Once, she pleaded, He's always been good to me, Mr. Lydgate. He never had a hard word for his mother. As if poor Fred's suffering were an accusation against him. All the deepest fibers of the mother's memory were stirred, and the young man whose voice took a gentler tone when he spoke to her was one with the babe whom she had loved, with a love new to her, before he was born. I have good hope, Mrs. Vincey, Lydgate would say. Come down with me and let us talk about the food. In that way, he led her to the parlor where Rosamond was, and made a change for her, surprising her into taking some tea or broth which had been prepared for her. There was a constant understanding between him and Rosamond on these matters. He almost always saw her before going to the sick room, and she appealed to him as to what she could do for Mama. Her presence of mind and adroitness in carrying out his hints were admirable, and it is not wonderful that the idea of seeing Rosamond begin to mingle itself with his interest in the case, especially when the critical stage was passed, and he began to feel confident of Fred's recovery. In the more doubtful time, he had advised calling in Dr. Sprague, who, if he could, would rather have remained neutral on Wrench's account. But after two consultations, the conduct of the case was left to Lydgate, and there was every reason to make him assiduous. Morning and evening he was at Mr. Vincey's, and gradually the visits became cheerful, as Fred became simply feeble, and lay not only in need of the utmost petting but conscious of it, so that Mrs. Vincey felt as if, after all, the illness had made a festival for her tenderness. Both father and mother held it an added reason for good spirits when old Mr. Featherstone sent messages by Lydgate, saying that Fred must make haste and get well, as he, Peter Featherstone, could not do without him, and missed his visit sadly. The old man himself was getting bedridden. Mrs. Vincey told these messages to Fred when he could listen, and he turned towards her his delicate, pinched face, from which all the thick, blonde hair had been cut away, and in which the eyes seemed to have got larger, yearning for some word about Mary, wondering what she felt about his illness. No word passed his lips, but to hear with eyes belongs to love's rare wit, and the mother in the fullness of her heart not only divined Fred's longing, but felt ready for any sacrifice in order to satisfy him. If I can only see my boy strong again, she said in her loving folly, and who knows, perhaps master of Stone Court, and he can marry anybody he likes then. Not if they won't have me, mother, said Fred. The illness had made him childish, and tears came as he spoke. Oh, take a bit of jelly, my dear, said Mrs. Vincey, secretly incredulous of any such refusal. She never left Fred's side when her husband was not in the house, and thus Rosamond was in the unusual position of being much alone. Lydgate, naturally, never thought of staying long with her, yet it seemed that the brief impersonal conversations they had together were creating that peculiar intimacy which consists in shyness. They were obliged to look at each other in speaking, and somehow the looking could not be carried through as the matter of course which it really was. Lydgate began to feel this sort of consciousness unpleasant, and 
one day looked down or anywhere, like an ill-worked puppet. But this turned out badly. The next day, Rosamond looked down, and the consequence was that when their eyes met again, both were more conscious than before. There was no help for this in science, and as Lydgate did not want to flirt, there seemed to be no help for it in folly. It was therefore a relief when neighbors no longer considered the house in quarantine, and when the chances of seeing Rosamond alone were very much reduced. But that intimacy of mutual embarrassment, in which each feels that the other is feeling something, having once existed, its effect is not to be done away with. Talk about the weather and other well-bred topics is apt to seem a hollow device, and behavior can hardly become easy unless it frankly recognizes a mutual fascination, which of course need not mean anything deep or serious. This was the way in which Rosamond and Lydgate slid gracefully into ease and made their intercourse lively again. Visitors came and went as usual. There was once more music in the drawing room, and all the extra hospitality of Mr. Vincy's mayoralty returned. Lydgate, whenever he could, took his seat by Rosamond's side and lingered to hear her music, calling himself her captive, meaning, all the while, not to be her captive. The preposterousness of the notion that he could at once set up a satisfactory establishment as a married man was a sufficient guarantee against danger. This play at being a little in love was agreeable and did not interfere with graver pursuits. Flirtation, after all, was not necessarily a singeing process. Rosamond, for her part, had never enjoyed the days so much in her life before. She was sure of being admired by someone worth captivating, and she did not distinguish flirtation from love, either in herself or in another. She seemed to be sailing with the fair wind just whither she would go, and her thoughts were much occupied with a handsome house in Lowick Gate, which she hoped would by and by be vacant. She was quite determined when she was married to rid herself adroitly of all the visitors who were not agreeable to her at her father's, and she imagined the drawing-room in her favorite house with various styles of furniture. Certainly her thoughts were much occupied with Lydgate himself. He seemed to her almost perfect. If he had known his notes so that his enchantment under her music had been less like an emotional elephant's, and if he had been able to discriminate better the refinements of her taste in dress, she could hardly have mentioned a deficiency in him. How different he was from young Plymdale or Mr. Caius Larcher. These young men had not a notion of French, and could speak on no subject with striking knowledge, except perhaps the dying and carrying trades, which of course they were ashamed to mention. They were Middlemarch gentry, elated with their silver-headed whips and satin stocks, but embarrassed in their manners, and timidly jocose. Even Fred was above them, having at least the accent and manner of a university man, whereas Lydgate was always listened to, bore himself with the careless politeness of conscious superiority, and seemed to have the right clothes on by a certain natural affinity, without ever having to think about them. Rosamond was proud when he entered the room, and when he approached her with a distinguishing smile, she had a delicious sense that she was the object of enviable homage. If Lydgate had been aware of all the pride he excited in that delicate bosom, he might have been just as well pleased as any other man, even the most densely ignorant of humoral pathology or fibrous tissue. He held it one of the prettiest attitudes of the feminine mind to adore a man's preeminence without too precise a knowledge of what it consisted in. But Rosamond was not one of those helpless girls who betray themselves unawares and whose behavior is awkwardly driven by their impulses instead of being steered by weary grace or propriety. Do you imagine that her rapid forecast and rumination concerning house furniture and society were ever discernible in her conversation, even with her mama? 
On the contrary, she would have expressed the prettiest surprise and disapprobation if she had heard that another young lady had been detected in that immodest prematureness. Indeed, would probably have disbelieved in its possibility, for Rosamond never showed any unbecoming knowledge, and was always that combination of correct sentiments, music, drawing, dancing, elegant note-writing, private album for extracted verse, and perfect blonde loveliness, which made the irresistible woman for the doomed man of that date. Think no unfair evil of her, pray. She had no wicked plots, nothing sordid or mercenary. In fact, she never thought of money except as something necessary, which other people would always provide. She was not in the habit of devising falsehoods, and if her statements were no direct clue to fact, why, they were not intended in that light. They were among her elegant accomplishments, intended to please. Nature had inspired many arts in finishing Mrs. Lemon's favorite pupil, who by general consent, Fred's accepted, was a rare compound of beauty, cleverness, and amiability. Lydgate found it more and more agreeable to be with her, and there was no constraint now. There was a delightful interchange of influence in their eyes, and what they said had that superfluity of meaning for them, which is observable with some sense of flatness by a third person. Still, they had no interviews or asides from which a third person need have been excluded. In fact, they flirted, and Lydgate was secure in the belief that they did nothing else. If a man could not love and be wise, surely he could flirt and be wise at the same time? Really, the men in Middlemarch, except Mr. Fairbrother, were great bores, and Lydgate did not care about commercial politics or cards. What was he to do for relaxation? He was often invited to the Bulstrodes, but the girls there were hardly out of the schoolroom, and Mrs. Bulstrode's naive way of conciliating piety and worldliness, the nothingness of this life and desirability of cut glass— the consciousness at once of filthy rags and the best damask was not a sufficient relief from the weight of her husband's invariable seriousness. The Vincy's house, with all its faults, was the pleasanter by contrast. Besides, it nourished Rosamond, sweet to look at as a half-opened blush rose, and adorned with accomplishments for the refined amusement of man. But he made some enemies, other than medical, by his success with Miss Vincy. One evening he came into the drawing-room rather late, when several other visitors were there. The card-table had drawn off the elders and Mr. Ned Plimdale, one of the good matches in Middlemarch, though not one of its leading minds, was in tete with Rosamond. He had brought the last keepsake, the gorgeous watered silk publication which marked modern progress at that time, and he considered himself very fortunate that he could be the first to look over it with her dwelling on the ladies and gentlemen with shiny copper-plate cheeks and copper-plate smiles, and pointing to comic verses as capital and sentimental stories as interesting. Rosamond was gracious, and Mr. Ned was satisfied that he had the very best thing in art and literature as a medium for paying addresses, the very thing to please a nice girl. He had also reasons, deep rather than ostensible, for being satisfied with his own appearance— to superficial observers, his chin had too vanishing an aspect, looking as if it were being gradually reabsorbed, and it did indeed cause him some difficulty about the fit of his satin stocks, for which chins were at that time useful. "'I think the Honorable Mrs. S. is something like you,' said Mr. Ned. He kept the book open at the bewitching portrait and looked at it rather languishingly. "'Her back is very large. She seems to have sat for that,' said Rosamond not meaning any satire, but thinking how red young Plymdale's hands were, and wondering why Lydgate did not come. She went on with her tatting all the while. "'I did not say she was as beautiful as you are,' said Mr. Ned, 
venturing to look from the portrait to its rival. I suspect you of being an adroit flatterer, said Rosamond, feeling sure that she should have to reject this young gentleman a second time. But now Lydgate came in. The book was closed, for he reached Rosamond's corner, and as he took his seat with easy confidence on the other side of her, young Plymdale's jaw fell like a barometer towards the cheerless side of change. Rosamond enjoyed not only Lydgate's presence, but its effect. She liked to excite jealousy. What a latecomer you are, she said as they shook hands. Mama had given you up a little while ago. How do you find Fred? As usual. Going on well, but slowly. I want him to go away, to Stone Court, for example, but your mamma seems to have some objection. Poor fellow, said Rosamond, prettily. You will see Fred so changed, she added, turning to the other suitor. We have looked to Mr. Lydgate as our guardian angel during this illness. Mr. Ned smiled nervously, while Lydgate, drawing the keepsake towards him and opening it, gave a short scornful laugh and tossed up his chin, as if in wonderment at human folly. "'What are you laughing at so profanely?' said Rosamond, with bland neutrality. "'I wonder which would turn out to be the silliest, the engravings or the writing here,' said Lydgate in his most convinced tone, while he turned over the pages quickly, seeming to see all through the book in no time and showing his large white hands to much advantage, as Rosamond thought. "'Do look at this bridegroom coming out of church. Did you ever see such a sugared invention?' as Eliza Bethans used to say. "'Did any haberdasher ever look so smirking?' Yet I will answer for it, the story makes him one of the first gentlemen in the land. You are so severe. I am frightened at you, said Rosamond, keeping her amusement duly moderate. Poor young Plymdale had lingered with admiration over this very engraving, and his spirit was stirred. There are a great many celebrated people riding in the keepsake, at all events, he said, in a tone at once piqued and timid. This is the first time I've heard it called silly. I think I shall turn round on you and accuse you of being a goth, said Rosamond, looking at Lydgate with a smile. I suspect you know nothing about Lady Blessington and L.E.L. Rosamond herself was not without relish for these writers, but she did not readily commit herself by admiration and was alive to the slightest hint that anything was not, according to Lydgate, in the very highest taste. But Sir Walter Scott, I suppose Mr. Lydgate knows him, said young Plymdale, little cheered by this advantage. Oh, I read no literature now, said Lydgate, shutting the book and pushing it away. I read so much when I was a lad that I suppose it will last me all my life. I used to know Scott's poems by heart. I should like to know when you left off, said Rosamond, because then I might be sure that I knew something which you did not know. Mr. Lydgate would say that was not worth knowing, said Mr. Ned, purposely caustic. On the contrary, said Lydgate, showing no smart, but smiling with exasperating confidence at Rosamond. It would be worth knowing by the fact that Miss Vincy could tell it me. Young Plymdale soon went to look at the whist playing, thinking that Lydgate was one of the most conceited, unpleasant fellows it had ever been his ill fortune to meet. How rash you are, said Rosamond, inwardly delighted. Do you see that you've given offense? What? Is it Mr. Plymdale's book? I'm sorry. I didn't think about it. I shall begin to admit what you said of yourself when you first came here that you are a bear and want teaching by the birds. Well, there is a bird who can teach me what she will. Don't I listen to her willingly? To Rosamond, it seemed as if she and Lydgate were as good as engaged. That they were some time to be engaged had long been an idea in her mind. And ideas, we know, tend to a more solid kind of existence than necessary materials being at hand. It is true, 
Lydgate had the counter-idea of remaining unengaged, but this was a mere negative, a shadow cast by other resolves which themselves were capable of shrinking. Circumstance was almost sure to be on the side of Rosamond's idea, which had a shaping activity and looked through watchful blue eyes, whereas Lydgate's lay blind and unconcerned as a jellyfish which gets melted without knowing it. That evening when he went home, he looked at his files to see how a process of maceration was going on with undisturbed interest, and he wrote out his daily notes with as much precision as usual. The reveries from which it was difficult for him to detach himself were ideal constructions of something else than Rosamond's virtues, and the primitive tissue was still his fair unknown. Moreover, he was beginning to feel some zest for the growing, though half-suppressed, feud between him and the other medical men, which was likely to become more manifest. Now that Bulstrode's method of managing the new hospital was about to be declared, and there were various inspiriting signs that his non-acceptance by some of Peacock's patients might be counterbalanced by the impression he had produced in other quarters. Only a few days later, when he happened to overtake Rosamond on the Lowick Road and had got down from his horse to walk by her side until he had quite protected her from a passing drove, he had stopped by a servant on horseback with a message calling him into a house of some importance where Peacock had never attended, and it was a second instance of this kind. The servant was Sir James Chetham's, and the house was Lowick Manor. That wraps Manor. up today's episode. As always, thank you so much for staying until the end and supporting me. If you want to support me any further, as always, the link to my Patreon is in the description. If you like what you hear, share it with a friend. I'm on all major podcast platforms. See you next week.